We'll be reading tonight from Philippians chapter 3, um, beginning in verse 10, Philippians 3, so you can follow on the screen, on your particular screens, or again, if you've got a Bible, that'd be awesome too. You can read along. Philippians 3, beginning in verse 10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death if somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained this or have already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Beloved, I do not consider that I have made it my own, but this one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead. I press on towards the goal for the prize of the heavenly call of God in Christ Jesus. Let those of us then who are mature be of the same mind. And if you think differently about anything, this too God will reveal to you. Only let us hold fast to what we have attained. I'll stop there. First night, uh, we, the, again, the goal there was simple, to, to, to convey to the idea that the, I, the, the concept of what happens after death, of glorification, of heaven, is not only a biblical thing, it is not a, an optional extra. It is essential to the idea that we believe that Christ has been raised from the dead, he's alive, and we can follow in that resurrection hope. That's an essential part of Christian belief. Last night, we went for the essence, the idea of what this is. And, we, and the, what we said was, was that it, at its essence, that glorification heaven is not so much the absence of sorrow, but the presence of God. Tied up in the idea of home, a home where we're welcome, always. And relationships that give us joy. Now, tonight and tomorrow night, tonight in particular, the question is this, what difference does it make to you? Tomorrow's going to be what difference does it make to us, but as, as a church, as a, a people of God. But tonight, what is the, the implication in your life of heaven, of, of glorification, of, of being able to have this hope as an anchor to the soul? And again, let's sort of take the rocket ride, the 30,000 foot view of this. Um, for one thing from, our, from this passage in Philippians, the idea that we have this hope for us, the idea of, of heaven, of glorification, the big arch of the Christian life, where this is all heading, it helps us, it tells you, you know, just calm down. Everybody calm down. Just relax. Just calm down. It, it, it helps us to be comfortable in our own skin. I made reference uh, the other day of um, that slogan, um, Keep calm and carry on. You've seen that? Does anyone know where that comes from? That was actually published by the British government in 1939 during the Second World War when they knew they declared war on Germany and they knew that very soon there were bombs would be raining down on London. They knew there would be this blitz. They knew that houses would be destroyed, lives would be lost. They knew that it was coming, so they printed these posters to put all around London, keep calm and carry on. Now, that had a lot to do with what they call the, the British stiff upper lip. If you've ever been there, it's like this sort of, we, this, we're just going <laughs> to, in spite of the bombs that are going to be dropping, we're just going to move on. We're going to keep going. 
kind of wired into their disposition, their national disposition. Now, as Christians, we need to go a little deeper than that. How is it that we can say because of heaven, because of glorification, that we can simply keep calm and carry on? Well, interestingly, we see this in the very first couple of passages because it gives us a divine desire, which is concurrently this. The idea that we want to live for Jesus, but also that one day the claws of death are going to grab us. Like, doesn't that give you a lot of hope? <laughs> Let's read. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the sharing of his sufferings by becoming like him in his death. If somehow I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing that there is this Jesus who was alive, there is this heaven waiting for us. It is the idea that because of this, I have a desire, I have this burning desire that is wired to the Christian's disposition, is I want to know this Jesus, and we'll get to this a little bit later on, the idea that I want to suffer as well, like him in his death, that I may attain the resurrection from the dead. That I know this is where this is headed, but I know what my identity is. I know the destination, and therefore, I can be just, it's okay. How many psychology majors do we have here? Raise your hand, anybody? anybody? Um, you know what? Psychology has always kind of baffled me, only because it's a really, really important discipline. But like a lot of these social sciences, it, the, the, the goalposts are always changing. We always have more research. And I was fascinated about the basis of your insecurity and my insecurity. Now, biblically, we have an idea about this, but in the world of psychology, there's all kinds of theories as to why we're all so incredibly insecure. One theory is the, um, the whole attachment theory. You know what that is, the attachment theory? Raise your hand. Okay. Okay. The attachment theory is basically says this. Is the way that you attach to your parents, I'm really generalizing here, or the mistakes they made. The way that you are attached to them gives you this lifelong disposition which causes a lot of insecurity. It could be this ambivalent, anxious kind of attachment. It could be an avoidance kind of attachment. But it all boils down to this, whether you believe that or not. Our insecurities are bound up in us seeking some kind of approval, some kind of reassurance, or being fearful that you won't be accepted, avoiding conflict, suppressing our emotions. And the result is, is that we're just not comfortable in our own skin. We're not sure who we really are, where our home really is, where this is all headed. I want to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, be like him in his death, and to somehow attain this resurrection from the dead. It is a conviction about your identity and your destination. Have you ever noticed... Um, and I know there's a word for this, or it's a phenomenon, that when you're traveling somewhere, say in a car, and you don't know exactly where you're going, you don't know the directions quite that well, and you've got to be somewhere, that the trip there sometimes can be kind of stressful. Making the right turn. I'm going to get there on time. And even if you have a GPS, that's always not a solution. I've been using uh, a Google Maps GPS for a long time. You know that, that voice? Google Maps? I call her Eloise. And Eloise has sometimes given me some really wacky directions. 
I had just gotten this job a couple years ago, and I was on my way here. I was living in Birmingham at the time, and I was driving from Birmingham down I-65, and you've got to get off I-65 to make this all the, the two-lane roads down to, to Laguna Beach. As I was getting off I-65, I saw a sign for the Hank Williams Boyhood Museum in Georgiana, Alabama. And I'm just crazy about Hank Williams Sr. I think Hank Williams is amazing. Old school country music. I need to go here. So I pulled over on the side of the road, and I looked it up on my GPS, and I saw a picture of it, and I plugged it in, and it did that thing, you know, travel five miles down this road, make a left in 500 feet. And it got really strange because I knew what it looked like, but I was going down these really backwoods roads. There was like double wide trailers everywhere. There were handwritten signs that were kind of creeping me out. And then it told me to go down this dirt road, three miles down the road, and I pulled in there, and there was this guy, this old ramshackle house, and there was a washing machine outside. There was a satellite TV dish there, and there was a guy on the stoop drinking a Kentucky Gentleman bourbon, looking at me. As we made eye contact, Eloise said this, you have arrived at your destination. I hadn't. <laughs> I turned around because I thought, you know what, I don't want to hang on this moment too long. And I rushed back, and I finally found the place. But when I drove back to the highway, it was kind of calm. The ride back is always shorter once you've reached that destination. It always is. Now, in a more cosmic sense here, in a very, very larger sense here, the idea of knowing where our destination is, where your identity is, where the, where the turns ought to be, give us this sense of our personal identity. It gives us an idea that, you know what, we're, we're moving in this particular direction, and that's what we're moving toward. Yeah, verse 12 and 14 tells us, a great qualifier here, that we are always a work in progress. Verse 12, not that I have already obtained this or already reached the goal, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus had made me his own. This is always a work in progress. Not that I, yeah, I, I, want, I want to know Christ. I want to be comfortable with the idea that one day death is going to get me. I want to be sure where I, my home is, what my life is all about. But I have not obtained, I've not been made perfect. This is still a great struggle for me. So the idea of glorification probably understood helps us avoid perfectionism, and it helps us embrace glorification. Let me give you a definition of that. This comes from a friend of mine named Jean LaRue. He says this, Perfectionism is a depressive idea that all things will be made right on this earth, in this life, by our power. Okay? If, if, now, if, if you think that, you're in for a very disappointing, frustrating life. But the idea of glorification, what's waiting for us, means that we can avoid that. Glorification is the liberating truth that all things will be made right in heaven after this life by God's power and might. Again, I said it before, looking for things in this life that you can only fully expect in heaven is a recipe for depression. It is the Gordian knot of Christian existence. But this does not mean that we are passive. I press on. I strain forward. 
Raise your hand if you do CrossFit. Do you do CrossFit, anybody? Wow. Raise your hand, CrossFit, anybody? Okay, keep your hand up. Wow. Um, all right. I find CrossFit to be one of the creepiest things ever. Sorry, I shouldn't say that. CrossFit people kind of scare me. CrossFit people, if you go there, you go and they, you pay a lot of money and they're, they're into their thing. But I will say this about CrossFit people. CrossFit people know the value of what? Yeah, yeah, working out. They know the value of, in physical training, of resistance, of lifting weights. Now, the whole thing about the community, it's good. I shouldn't say that. They're, they're, they're sweet, wonderful people. But CrossFit people, I understand the idea that in physical training, it's all about the resistance. It's all about doing it over and over again. The result of knowing where we're headed doesn't mean that we're indifferent. What it means is it gives us motivation, as it says here, to press on, to strain forward. First Timothy 4 says this, physical training is good, isn't it? Right, go like this, it is. But training for godliness is much better, promising benefits in this life and the next. It is not an excuse for indifference. It's an ex it is a way by which that we are freed to press on, knowing that we have not been made perfect. We push on knowing where our goal is. C.S. Lewis, who uh, lived during the Second World War, was a, a, a Christian who did a lot to explain and defend the Christian faith. And during the Second World War, he gave a series of radio broadcasts about the Christian faith. And in that, he dealt with a lot of common objections of the day to Christianity. And one of those objections then was this. You know, you Christians, you're all so heavenly-minded, you're no earthly good. You know, you're always thinking about heaven. You know, it, it, just, you just, it just doesn't make you good for anything in this earth. And he responded this way. If you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. The apostles themselves, those who set foot on the conversion of the Roman Empire, the great men who built up the Middle Ages, the English evangelicals who abolished the slave trade, all left their mark on the earth precisely because their minds were occupied with heaven. And so it is not a matter that we remove ourselves from this world, but it gives us extra incentive to know that everything is going to be fine. The consummation of all things means that we will realize this fully in heaven, and we press on and we strain on. Third, the idea of heaven, it teaches us to be hopeful people. That should be obvious, shouldn't it? We should be hopeful people. But we need to understand the distinction between being hopeful people and optimistic people. It's not the same thing. Hope, Christian hope and optimism are not the same things. If you're a football fan, if your team had a good recruiting year, hey, we're optimistic. It's going to be a great year. If you invest in stocks and your company has good earnings reports, hey, I am optimistic about my investment income. Optimism is not Christian hope. Cornell West wrote this on this subject. Hope is a qualitatively different category than optimism. 
Optimism is a secular construct, a calculation of probability. Christian hope wrestles with despair, but it doesn't generate optimism. It just generates this energy to be courageous, to bear witness, to see what the end is going to be. So to be a Christian is to have a joyful attitude toward the resurrection claim, to stake one's life on it, to rest one's hope upon its promise, the promise of a new heaven and a new earth. We are all very dispositionally different. When I interviewed for this job, uh, the committee that was going to make this hire, among many questions, asked me, Tom, what are your, what are your weaknesses? What, what should we know about you? And among many things I said, you need to know that I get the melancholy a lot. I mean, that's just the way I'm wired. I feel, you know, it just visits me. I mean, I just get really sad. And when I get sad, I detach, I remove myself. You need to know the way I'm wired is, more than most people, I get that sadness. I get that melancholy. And as a young Christian, I often struggle with that because in the very earliest Christian cultures I, was, I ran around in, it was all, wow. Christian hope, man, everything was great and wonderful and chipper and happy, and some people are just wired that way. I was never wired that way. I thought, well, I'm just not. I must be losing this Christian hope thing. And that is not what Christian hope's all about. Christian hope does wrestle with despair. Christian hope does wrestle with heartbreak and frustration. And it doesn't generate this probability equation. It generates, this, it generates a courage to bear witness to this, to live through this, and to stake your life on the resurrection claim. So Christian hope and optimism are not exactly the same things. In this passage, it talks about the sufferings of Jesus, living with these sufferings. That's part of Christian hope. And so the idea of heaven, the idea of glorification, instills in us a deep-seated hope that is an anchor for the soul. Not simply, I'm going to work out the equations here, and it's probability, life is going to be okay. We don't know that, but we know the big picture. We know the ultimate destination. We know the story. Finally, a practical implication for you is that glorification, this is actually kind of a negative. We'll turn this around. This is all... This gets turned around when we mix, we change the price tags. When we start losing sight of heaven and we just become so in love with this world. I use this example a lot. This phone is a Nexus 6 phone. Any Android fans out there? It's a Nexus 6. I got over a year ago. And when I got this phone, I loved it so much, I would wake up in the middle of the night and stare at it. My precious. <laughs> I love this phone. It was so great. The screen was really big, and it was so fast, and it was so cool. Now I hate this phone. It's so slow. <laughs> okay. There's so many better phones out there. Like, what? Come on, come on. This phone stinks. I can't wait where I'm allowed to get a new phone. That's called the satisfaction treadmill, or some people call it hedonic adaptation. 
It is a process by which we find something new in this life, and it fills this kind of vacuum. And we get this visceral thrill because we got a new job, we're at a new school, we're in a new relationship. And that seems so great. But then it begins to lose its luster. It doesn't deliver the goods like it used to, so we move on to the next one. And if we don't, we don't, if the gospel does not intervene in that process, you lose, you will lose that hope. Because you will lurch from one thing to the next, which you think will deliver the goods. Yeah, for a few moments, I actually thought that a phone would deliver the goods. Yeah, I did. Big mistake. They were going to do it. So when we switch the price tags, when we, become too, we go too in love with this world, we lose that. Let me, let me give you um, a, a great metaphor to end with this. One thing the scriptures tell us is that marriage, the relationship between a husband and wife, is this picture, this mystery, Paul says in Ephesians, is the relationship between a husband and wife is like a relationship between Christ and his church. Now, for most of you, this is all in the potential aspect. Let me give you some reality here. Um, and it's, I'm not going to trash marriage. I love being married. But um, I'll put it this way. Um, my wife, a few years ago, um, said to me, you know, I, I, might, I might one day write a book about our marriage together. I said, well, what would you call it? And she said, I would call it, Little Did She Know. <laughs> little Did She Know. Ooh. Now, she loves me, but, you know, I, did, I didn't know everything or even a lot. Um, you can write this down. I'm a minority here. I don't do premarital counseling. I think most of it's a complete waste of time. Most people disagree with me on that one. I don't do it. I have one meeting with couples who want to get married. And I say, if you want to have premarital counseling, here's someone you can go to. I don't do it. Several reasons. One is I've never seen a correlated relationship between the amount of premarital counseling people get and how successful the marriage is. The other thing is it sometimes breeds this sort of like almost overconfidence. But another reason I don't do it is, is that a lot of premarital counseling, the books we read, the courses, give you this image of marriage. This is just me, my opinion. This is my opinion. I could be wrong about this one. I'm not going to die on this hill. But a lot of them give this idea of marriage, which is kind of like, I'm thinking, not every healthy marriage looks like that. Some can be really, really different. But the number one reason why I don't do premarital counseling in the traditional sense, you can write this down, everyone marries a stranger. Write that down. <laughs> everyone, everyone, everyone marries a stranger. I don't care how long you've been dating, courting, whatever you want to call it, you marry a stranger. And in his excellent book, the only book about marriage I pass out is a book by Mike Mason called The Mystery of Marriage. I think it's the best, only one I recommend. In that book, he talks about how in every normal marriage, there comes a point where one of the spouses will wake up and they will look at this person lying next to them. And they will say to themselves, this person whom the day that I married them, I thought was going to be the key to happiness. It feels like they are by one obstacle to happiness. And every marriage, there comes that point. And if the gospel doesn't speak to that point, things can go really wrong. The gospel has to speak to that point because, you know, it's just, it's not what you expect. It's simply not what you expect. He goes on to say this. 
about the beauty, the deep beauty of marriage when the gospel speaks to you, when you feel a certain way, when you learn things about this person who you married that you didn't expect, little did she know, and you find your own selfishness of your own heart. Mason writes this, marriage is about nakedness, exposure, defenselessness, and the very extremities of intimacy. It is about the simple, unadorned truth between two human beings. Truth at all levels and at all costs. And it does not care what pain or inconvenience must be endured in order for the habit of truth to take root, to be watered, and to grow into maturity. Now, that analogy applies to Christ in the church. Living for Jesus and having this eternal home means pressing and straining toward the goal, and it does not care a whit about the cost involved. It does not care about the pain or inconvenience that you have to endure in order for the truth to take root, to be watered, and to grow into maturity. That cannot happen if you think that there is nothing beyond this life. That cannot happen if you think the bones of Jesus are lying in Palestine somewhere. That cannot happen if you are not convinced that on the basis of Christ's work for you, the story, the arch, where we're headed is this place where we call home. If not, what are we doing here? If the gospel is not true, we don't have this hope. I have picked the wrong vocation, haven't I? If the gospel is not true and we don't have this hope, how can I say this? I wouldn't be hanging out with you people. I put a, I, in one sense, if, if the gospel wasn't true, anarchy to me would be the most consistent philosophical. I'd be putting bricks through windows somewhere, I think. But Christ has been raised from the dead. We have the big story. And this means that we can, can move in that direction of being more and more comfortable in our own skin. It means that we can, we can move and understand that we have not been made perfect, that it is a lifelong work in progress. And we have this glorious hope that does wrestle with despair, and it doesn't care in this life what the costs are, what the pain is, what the inconvenience to you is, but that because we follow Jesus, it must take root, it must be watered, and grow into maturity. Amen. Let's pray together. Lord, we give thanks for the hope of the gospel and pray that as we enjoy our company with each other tonight, as we uh, talk about our lives, we talk about this week, uh, that in a very s s real sense, we would see this as a small reflection of even what we, we expect to happen in glory, enjoying your presence with us, enjoying each other's company, and, and talking about the mercy and beauty of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen. Amen.